Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988. That's 13,050 days, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed the more than 130 interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. Today's show is my interview with Greg S., whose envied life before sobriety was one of booze, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Raised in California in a family rife with alcoholism, dysfunctional behavior infested his home during his childhood and adolescent years. Struggling to fit in among the kids his age, Greg joined in their antics and began drinking and smoking marijuana by the time he was 14. That, plus his passion for rock music, helped him through his teenage years, though he drank much more heavily than his peers. Greg started a successful band at age 18, only to be fired from it by band members who he thought drank as much as he did. His proclivity for overshooting the mark became a theme in Greg's life and early career, along with multiple divorces and trouble with the law. Fortunately, his functional alcoholism during his years as a drummer and later as a record company executive allowed him to evade serious consequences. In fact, his very profession in the music industry seemed to tolerate and often ignore his deleterious behavior. But the inevitable downhill slide accelerated in Greg's personal life until a drunken assault of a family member of one of his failed marriages landed him in trouble with the law, from which there was no escape, save Alcoholics Anonymous. Inpatient treatment followed by court-ordered AA provided Greg with enough clarity of thought to propel him into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous nearly 26 years ago. He quickly embraced the program and found the guiding hands that drew him into an active practice of AA recovery and continuous service to his fellows. These days, Greg is as busy as ever, though a reshuffling of his priorities over the years has placed AA and sobriety at the top of his list. The spiritual awakening he has experienced both informs his work with newcomers and those he sponsors. To hear Greg share today, many might find his pre-sobriety story nothing short of incredulous. But like those who have shared on this show, and those who have listened to it on a regular basis, nothing is surprising or unusual about Greg's lively travails on the road of happy destiny. It's what we recovering alcoholics do. So, relax and enjoy the next hour and ten minutes of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Greg S. My name is Greg and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Greg. I'm so glad that you're able to join me today on AA Recovery Interviews. It's really a thrill and a pleasure to have you here. Well, I always say I'm grateful to God and AA to be here, and I would say that holds for this conversation, too. So thanks. Well, well, good. It's nice to know that we think along the same lines. Doing these interviews is another way that I can give back that which has been so freely given to me. Now, you recently told me you had 25 years sober? Yeah, my uh, sobriety date is October 16, 1997. So you're coming up on 26 years. Yeah. Amazing. As my sponsor would always remind me when I used to say, well, gee, I'm almost whatever. He says, so you're 25. (laughs) He He used to tell me we don't front time in AA. 
26 years ago or thereabouts, was that the first time you ever tried getting sober? Yes. I uh, never really considered not using alcohol and drugs. I'm one of those guys. I like it all. Uh, I mean, yeah. I have I have certain or had certain favorites, but for the most part, uh, I was 37 when I when I quit drinking and came to AA mm-hmm. and I had had mm-hmm. run out of road and I had never really thought about it. My family is a CIA Catholic Irish alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were plenty of people in my family that did, drank too much. And I found out mm-hmm. some years later, quite a few had gotten into recovery, but I, I didn't know anything about it. So you waited for quite a while, even though it was going on in your family, but you didn't know about it. That's interesting. How about in your immediate family, parents and that sort of thing? Yeah, so my mother, uh, both my parents are, are dead now. My mother died a little over a year ago in her, in her 90s, mm-hmm. and uh, she was from a big Irish Catholic family, the mm-hmm. youngest of seven, and her father uh, was an alcoholic. It took my mother many, many years to share that with me. She would see him passed out. They lived, grew up in Hollywood. Mm. She'd see him on more than one occasion passed out on a bus bench on Hollywood Boulevard and was always deeply embarrassed. And then she had a brother and five sisters and and for the most part all drank and most of them married uh, alcoholic spouses. Mm -hmm. So I remember as a young teenager, my mother telling me, you should never drink. Uh, She didn't understand drugs yet, different generation. She said, you should never drink because alcohol disagrees with this family. (laughs) <laughs> that was her sweet little way of telling me she had some experience. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I, every now and then, there are people I've known over the years who, whenever they introduce themselves, they say, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a recovering Catholic and alcoholic, or I'm an alcoholic and a CIA. Yeah. What is there about that linkage between Catholicism and alcoholism and Irish that put that together as a difficult place to tread? Well, the longer I've stayed sober and, and like some of us, done a fair amount of research about what the disease I have. I always figured, geez, if I had diabetes or I do have asthma or God forbid should have cancer, I'd want to learn about it. Uh And I know that we haven't found a specific gene that links to alcoholism, but it sure seems like there's some that are very adjacent to that and, and certain populations seem to be more susceptible. And I don't know if that's physiological or environmental, but... Mm-hmm. We uh, we Irish don't mind a drink, and we can't. My experience is we don't seem to be able to fend it off very well. Some people just quit, quit. Maybe uh, I wasn't able to do that. So, just through very practical experience, not not really any kind of uh, formal research, I'm mm-hmm. sure I've met a lot of Irish drunks, and thank God some of us actually got sober. Some of the stories I've heard from those same CIAs is about a miserable uh, experience at parochial school. I wondered if if you had any of that kind of experience. So one of the nicer things my parents passed on to me was a very loose concept of of a higher power. Mm -hmm. They they grew up in a very oppressive Catholic environment, you know, sort of uh, World War II era. And uh, and I'm pretty sure, again, they never really shared it with us, but that my my mother and my father married very young, 18 and 19, 
mm. maybe, maybe 17, 18. And pretty likely my mother was pregnant. And I think she was just looking to get out of the house. Difficult father, drinking, mm. uh, post-depression, post-World War II. Everybody was broke. I think now my grandfather drank away whatever financial resources they had. So my mother uh, was dating my father, who was pretty wild. I'm pretty sure she was pregnant, and they were from Hollywood, Hollywood High School, and they went to Blessed Sacrament was the local Catholic church there. And I think the church realized or found out my mother was pregnant, small town, even though it was L.A., small town kind of gossip, and pushed them out of the church. And I think they had such a bitter experience that by the time we came along, my... uh, I have a younger sister, too. They, their attitude was a very sort of Christian-centric home. A belief in higher power was God and Christ, but never pushed to go to church, And I think, because they were so bitter. And all my cousins and her sisters and everybody did go to church, and they were all, from my observation, pretty miserable, you know. Hmm. <laughs> so that was one of the, the nicer things my parents gave to us was the concept of a higher power, but to seek God on our own terms. I didn't have the grudge that people have that are actually in the system, so to speak, that are either forced to go to church or or a catechism or Sunday school and the uh, trauma of a confession and different than our version of confession, you know, different than our, our fourth or fifth step. But it was a pretty easygoing part of it. My experience with really trauma in my family was really around the act of drinking, people getting too drunk and a lot of fighting with my parents and, and a lot of my time, my mother pleading for my father to stop drinking and, and driving drunk, you know, with us in the car. And I don't know if you ever got arrested uh, drinking. I certainly got arrested some, some amount of times. But along with their sort of don't ever drink, it, it disagrees with this family. And, and my own observation, I mean, we had a Jesuit priest in the family and he was the first guy I ever saw fill up a water glass of whiskey. So, you know, all the, all the classic stuff. The same time I, and I'm not sure if it was environmental or, or installed at the factory, but really insecure little boy. For the most part, I'm kind of outgoing, but at that time, I was really afraid to be out mixing around the other kids. I didn't want to go to school. I wanted, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. Uh-huh. I wanted to stay at home. I felt as we like to say, uncomfortable in my own skin. I had no idea why. I just didn't want to be me. I just didn't feel like I fit in. Now, when you were a kid and you were seeing all the arguments and different things between your mother and father over his drinking, what did you know about alcoholism at that time? If someone had asked an 8-year-old or 10-year-old Greg, hey, what's an alcoholic? What was your conception of it? Was it your dad or was it something else? More of a family environment, like a lot of families, but big the big family, everybody would gather on the weekends. My mother and her sisters were all very close and all the uncles, brother-in-laws would be there. And and it was the classic party in the afternoon would start out, lots of fun. The kids are swimming and playing and uh, everybody's laughing and then starting to drink, you know, and as the evening would progress, the party would get louder. It, classic fun, fun yeah. with problems, problems. So it would, the music would get louder. It was the 60s, so there was music and the mm-hmm. conga drums would come out and the maracas and tan, everybody's, it's great. Yeah. And then uh, then the arguing would start, it's time to go, fuck you, I don't want to leave, you know, mm. everybody fighting. 
and and then trying to put the kids to bed, and we're listening down the hall, and everybody's fighting and arguing, and then watching people, the adults, sort of fall asleep early, which now I know, passing out, <laughs> passing out. and then going home, driving home, and uh, really remembering. My sister remembers. My sister may or may not be one of us. She, she's mm-hmm. never really put her hand up, but uh, she's wrestled with alcohol and drugs. But we would share the story. Our brother's older. He, he was already out of the house, but driving home and then my parents arguing, my father kind of bouncing off the curbs, trying to keep the car on the road. And, and my mother, very clear memories of saying, my father's name was Ray, 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 you can't drive. You're falling asleep. You're drunk. You're drunk. Stop it. Mm. And my sister and I having a lot of fear, you know, like so, this ain't right. <laughs> so I, I couldn't connect it to drinking, but I knew that as the evening progressed, things got weird. How did that affect you when you were a little kid? Was it all fear or did you ever try and get your dad to stop? Never. No. Very intimidated by my father. We spent some time together when I got to be a teenager, a young preteen and then teenager. We raced motorcycles together. I always rode motorcycles with him. And it was oh, one of the cool. few areas that we really connected. Mm-hmm. And um, I was always intimidated by my father. He was, you know, kind of a get rich quick kind of guy, always had ideas and mm-hmm. schemes. And we moved a lot, changed jobs a fair amount, and um, very impatient with me. And, uh, you know, I was struggling to find my way and my identity. I loved music, which is part of my story. It changed my life. But I, I couldn't, uh, music was a refuge. I didn't really, I loved my mother. I liked my dad. I don't know about the, the L word love. I didn't, it, he was, and he worked a lot. So I don't know if he was out partying and said he was working or if he was really working, but, and then he would be sleep on the couch during the weekend. So again, maybe he was drunk. Maybe he was just tired. I don't know. But my mother was very specific about saying, don't ever drink. It's a recurrent theme with her, wasn't it? Very much, very cautionary tale. A cautionary tale that made you want to do it more than ever. Absolutely correct. And uh, So how old were you when you had your first drink by your own volition? Well, my father was always, okay, hey, have a sip of my beer. You know, mm. five, six, seven years old, it was no big deal. And then, of course, you know, as I got a little older, 9, 10, 11, when, if he left his beer, definitely take a couple sips off it. So probably the first time I really got serious you know, going on, on camping trips to ride motorcycles, he I was probably 13 or 14. He'd say, oh, you can have your own beer. Of course, I loved it. And then right when I started middle school, classic story, the older kids drinking beer and smoking uh, weed. It kind of started almost the same time for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was of that era where they would come to the schools and the police, LAPD, would talk to us about drugs and that marijuana was a gateway drug and you should never try it and everybody would laugh. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it was absolutely a gateway drug for me. It led Beer led to harder alcohol for me. I Right away, I tried whiskey, gin, whatever we could get, and I loved beer, and I started smoking weed right away and immediately also loved it. And the marijuana bone was connected to you know, speed, and and I started taking LSD when I was about 14, and everything. I I liked changing how I felt. I was uncomfortable. Did it work every time for you, or were there times when you expected it to work and caved in? Absolutely. I attended to overshoot the mark, not not Mm -hmm. every time, but from early, so 14, 15, you know, getting a few beers together, go hang out at the beach, hang out in the park. I, I definitely blacked out a few times, you know, and then woke up sunburned at the beach or late to go home or threw mm-hmm. up. 
but other times it was cool, you know, so it's like a false positive, you know, so I, I didn't have that, I'm an alcoholic the first time I took a sip. I thought, okay, I really like to get drunk. I love the feeling. I feel suddenly cooler. I felt uh, not intimidated to talk to girls. Hmm. Uh, I felt like I could hang out with the, the cooler kids, which, of course, were just kids that were getting high. I loved rock and roll ever since I was a little boy. You know, uh, I used to think, why are people not, even as a six, seven years old, why aren't people stopping me on the street to tell tell me how much I looked like one of the Beatles? I was obsessed <laughs> with the Beatles, right? Right, of course, so, like all of know, us. <laughs> as a pudgy little kid with, you know, short hair, my ears sticking out. Couldn't understand it, but... Before I started drinking and getting high, that was my pathway to get out of the uncomfortable way I felt. I would listen to music on headphones, and that was my escape. First thing I knew, I knew how to work the record player. So I remember, if only I could do this, I don't even know what this was, but do, mm. be in this world all the time, I would be cool and I would feel better about myself. So that yeah. was that rock and roll thing always around. So, of course, I was attracted to that lifestyle. I started going to concerts pretty young. Smoking weed, getting high, taking acid, drinking. And you were a drummer? I'm a drummer. I didn't start playing drums till I was about 15, so I wanted to do it before I actually did it. Did your parents support you in, in your pursuit of music at all? No, 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 no. They hated it. What was their response to your participation, either in learning how to play or going to concerts or just hanging out with people who were doing it? Outrage. My father was convinced that, and I have no idea what his hang-up was, if he was afraid. Because he actually, his family grew up in show business in the films. And I think maybe he had a bad experience with his father, but they were outraged. The first drum kit I had, I brought it home. They told me, get it out. I had to leave it in the garage. I couldn't set it up anywhere. They begrudgingly let me go to a few concerts. They usually said no. So pretty early on, I got into the habit of lying, saying, oh, I'm going to go with a friend to study or whatever the, uh, you know, sort of excuse or alibi du jour was. I will say I also started getting in trouble right away, getting caught drinking. I wrecked all my parents' cars. I got my license when I was 16. Mm -hmm. First week I had my license, I got pulled over for an open container, unsafe turning speed. I got arrested for drunk driving a few times as a teenager. So I didn't understand that that was pretty good evidence that I, what, like you said, was overshooting the mark. I just figured I got to adjust a little bit here. So you had some consequences occurred early enough to maybe indicate that you were having a problem yes. with it. How did those situations turn out? Did you get out of it to the extent that you were able to say, well, yeah, I'll get into trouble, but I'll always be let off the hook? That is such a great question. That's a big part of my story. Early on, I kind of had a Jekyll and Hyde thing, which I know we, we do. I had some very straight, nice, you know, scholastic-focused friends and and, um, you know, support. And I did, I did well in school. I, I mm -hmm. put a minimum of effort in and did very well. I, I like to read. I always, not a math guy, but history, English, literature, art, I, I liked it all. So mm -hmm. I didn't have an issue with learning. I just didn't like any kind of rules of defiant. I don't want to be anywhere at a certain time. I don't like people telling me what to do. So my first consequence, mm -hmm. 16 years old, pulled over by the police. They gave me a citation to appear in court. They didn't arrest me the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in North Glendale, Montrose, a very small town kind of vibe. And so my mother had to take me to court, you know, because I was a minor. 
Mm-hmm. And they kind of let me off the hook. They said, well, son, you know, you're too young to be drinking and you got to be careful when you're driving. It's a privilege. And that was it. I think I got a fine. My mother was outraged. She couldn't believe they didn't throw the book at me. Hmm. So my, my experience was, well, okay, you got to have a good story when you get to court. And mm-hmm. if you overshoot the mark, you just got to adjust. And then when I was about 14, my parents found uh, marijuana in my room. I had stuffed in a record album. Mm-hmm. My mother didn't know what to do. She told me years later she had no idea how to help me. She knew mm-hmm. I was struggling, but she didn't know what to do. And my father just got angry. He just yelled at me and said, I don't understand with this drugs. And, you know, berated me and, and shamed me. You know, show me how you smoke this. I want to know why you like it. Just crazy. I think now after some years, he just didn't know what to say. Looking back, Greg, what could they have done or said at the time that would have changed your trajectory? Or was there nothing they could do or say? I think nothing. That's that's also a great question. I have thought about it. And when my mother near the end of her life said, I wish I could have helped you more because, you know, I struggled from 14 till and I get sober at 37. And when she told me that and I had done a meaningful, you know, a ninth step with her many mm-hmm. years before. And I thought about it. I said, you know, Mom, I think you probably did the best you could. She she did actually tell me you shouldn't drink. I mean, I, she didn't wasn't one of those families that said, well, as long as you drink, just be at home. And we support they, – they gave me a very clear understanding of what was – the rules of the road were for that home. In fact, when I left home, I was just shy of 18. They mm-hmm. found pills and alcohol. And one more time, I crashed a car. And I had just – I started college. I skipped a grade. I was – always ahead in, in scholastics. You and I had gotten accepted to UCLA, you know, which was a big deal, you know, mm-hmm. and our family was humble. We didn't have a lot yeah. of money. And my father said, You're you're blowing this opportunity because neither one of them went to college. And he said, either you have to stop drinking and doing all these other crazy things you're doing. And if you do stop, you can keep living here for free and go to college. We'll pay your tuition or you have to get out. My recollection was immediately said, well, see you later. And I, I left you know, <laughs> and, and dropped out of school, of course. Yeah. Did that become a pattern for your later life? To a certain degree. I've worked at my job for 32 years. I've been in music a long, long time. So uh-huh. I, I'm not really a quitter. I just, if I'm not comfortable with a situation, I'm ha- more with marriages and personal relationships than, than professional, to tell you the truth. So maybe you had enough at that point with your with your dad and you were willing to say, okay, I'm out of here, as opposed to, okay, I'll play under your rules. Yeah, I get 100%. that. 100%. And he wasn't uh, violent with me often. Every once in a while, I mean, I, re- I, I remember a Christmas uh, Eve, I came home drunk. I was probably 16 or 17. And, you know, he grabbed me by the throat and, and he did punch me, which is clearly not okay. But it, it wasn't like one more time I have a black eye. It was pretty outrageous, which was not, you know, maybe a year and a half later I, I was gone. So what did you end up doing when you left at that point? I hadn't dropped out of UCLA yet. I went and stayed with a friend. He had a one-room apartment, and I slept on the couch. And mm-hmm. He was really my drinking buddy. He was a little older, and my mother always hated him, and he really taught me how to drink hard alcohol. You know, I was using drugs and drinking, but he was, you know, mm. let's go get a pint of whiskey or gin and getting towards daily drinking at that point and, and consequences at school. And ironically, I worked at a pharmacy, but I never stole any drugs there. I, I don't know why I didn't. I, maybe I respected some authority. I don't know. But I, just, I was working. And then 
I was probably 18. I fell down in a bar at a concert mm-hmm. and tore all the ligaments in my leg and dislocated my, my shoulder and um, ended up in the hospital and had surgery. And mm-hmm. then I figured, fuck it, I'm going to drop out of school. It was silly. I'm, I'm not, you know, and I, I would, did go home to mom because my roommate kicked me out and I went home for a couple months to recover. And, uh, and then I left again and just, you know, did the couch surfing until I got finally got an apartment. All the time that I was building my musical career, I was working as a drummer. That's what I wanted to do. So all of that damage that you did to your body, it just took you out of circulation for, what, six months, something like that? Yeah, that's probably right. But I, I never connected. I mean, at that point, I had crashed three or four cars. I'd been arrested three or four times. Uh, had been hospitalized for auto accidents, drunk driving, uh, you mm. know, or driving under the influence, hot, you know, hospital again, falling down drunk. And, and it did not occur to me whatsoever that there was a, a relationship. It was bad luck. I can't believe a cop pulled me over. Gee, I had a couple too many drinks. I felt it, but on to the next one. I never thought I needed to look at any kind of long term moderation forget about quitting no fucking way I, I like the sense of ease and comfort man I like getting high or getting tight as we used to say yeah yeah I get that I never got arrested for drunk driving though I did it many many times right. I'm wondering after each one of these episodes and the consequences that occurred either going to jail or you know getting pulled over whatever it was the very next time that you started your evening off knowing that that's where you were going to end up. What what kind of lies were you telling yourself at the time to allow you to continue to do that? I'm not sure, Howard, if I even told myself anything as, other than here we go again. I, I don't know that I really contemplated cause and effect, you know, crime and punishment. I just... And if I did go to jail, you, and I, thank God I never had to spend more than a weekend, and it was always unpleasant. Every time I went to jail, was it down in, in, in L.A., downtown. Uh, and I think it was a sense of I just need to take it a little bit easy and or, gee, it could have been worse. You know, could have been worse. So, OK, you know, geez. And uh, it, even if I had crashed the car, I never had insurance. And, you know, it's the 70s, so you could get off the hook pretty easy. So I would be hitchhiking to work. I think also because I did tend to always have jobs, day jobs, mm-hmm. that it convinced me that my drinking and partying, it, it, it wasn't really impacting my life, even though every relationship I had, romantic, was destroyed by drinking, physical issues because of it, some legal issues, financial uh, no car. You know, who wants to, in Los Angeles, take the bus or, or hitchhike? That's how I got to work. Is I wrecked all the cars. So you were still functional. You were able to still hold down a job, which for a lot of us alcoholics was proof positive that we couldn't be alcoholics because alcoholics can't hold a job. So you're, you're functioning okay. That's what I did. And, and never once did I stop and think, wait a second, you know, even though I'm working during the day, most of the time I'm working hungover in the morning or leaving early to happy hour in the afternoon. Drink at lunch, drink at, yeah, or, you know, because I, I take pills, I take some, you know, take some speed or whatever. So there was always just trying to come up with the right prescription to get through the day. And then at this point, 
you know, starting from when I was about 18, I'm playing in a successful rock and roll band, I'm playing shows. So all the things that I wanted, I thought I wanted when I was this preteen, you know, I'm meeting girls now, you know, which I loved and it was fun and I get to dress how I want and I, you know, my, I, my father would say, cut your fucking hair, oh, that's all gone, you know, and I'm out there and yeah. I'm... And, you know, that alcoholic ego, big ego, low self-esteem. I don't. I know I got some issues, but every night I get to go play a show and people are clapping and you sign an autograph. It's great. Lifestyle and location played a part in that, too. There you are in Southern California. Yes. You're in a place where that kind of lifestyle is envied and you're, you're playing in a rock and roll band where everybody around you, that is the lifestyle that people Correct. seek. Uh, from rock and roll, you're living your your dreams, uh, so to if speak. If I'm, you know, driving heavy machinery, or I'm a pre med student, or I'm, you know, construction site or insurance, the job that I'm doing. I mean, I'm a mailboy during the day, so it's not a lot, a lot of responsibility. Or working odd job. My father hired me for about six months. I think he felt sorry for me. You know, it was terrible. <laughs> another bad experience. But yeah. at, by night, I was doing what I wanted. And you're right. It, it's an industry that applauded bad behavior, especially as a drummer. You know, Keith Moon and all those, the great wild drummers. It was sort of like, oh, wow, great. You know, and the first girlfriend I ever had was when I was before I lived at home. Very sweet girl. We, we were 16 and she's 17. And we used to like, drink beer at parties and smoke weed. You know, she, and she clearly was a normie but it was fun and mm -hmm. we started having sex and that was great and but uh, one of the first demands I had to make she got pregnant when she was 17 and and had an abortion and it was it was fairly traumatic I don't think we even realized how heavy what her parents found out so they were a Hispanic Catholic family so that was mm. not a lot of fun I mean it's not fun for anyone it was terrible but it was a consequence of drinking, you know, lowering my inhibitions and uh, drinking always impaired my ability to make good decisions. And so I made some bad decisions. And uh, but she was also the first person beside my mother to say, you know, when you drink or when we get high, I don't like you. You you change. She was the first one to say my personality changes. And to me, my I remember so clearly my answer. And, you know, I'm a little boy. I'm 16 was. Isn't yeah. that the point? Why I don't want to feel how I feel. I don't like who I am. Of course, I want to change. This right. is this is working for me. And of course, she finally broke up with me and said, "You know, I can't be around you. You're too crazy. You're not the not the guy I met. You know, whatever three years ago." And that was the beginning of of romantic relationships really really being dramatically impacted by my drinking and partying. While I was playing rock and roll, I couldn't I couldn't be faithful and any I always loved having a girlfriend. I don't like being alone. I'm ba bad with being abandonment. A core wound for me is abandonment. And I did some therapy, court ordered therapy when I got sober. And we did some work, a woman, very interesting therapist, some early, early work like earliest memory kind of stuff and mm -hmm. and my mother and father had separated when I was new a newborn six up to six months my father had left her I think he had another girlfriend and left the state my mother was bereft and afraid and and so the therapist said well it's likely during this period she was trying to just figure out what is going to happen to me she had no job she had nothing just my brother and me so early early abandonment and that shows up over and over in my story as what I've learned is a, a core wound of being af afraid to be alone. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the contradiction with people like 
me or, or like you and I, whenever I would have a woman uh, or, you know, any partner that would commit to, to a, a, a monogamous loving relationship, I, I would fuck it up. I, would, I was incapable before I got sober of being faithful, honest, monogamous. I couldn't do it. Because there was never enough. Just like booze and drugs, I also there wasn't enough sex or, or, or women or, or relationships. So uh, no matter who was at home waiting for me, there's always, you mm-hmm. know, it's rock and roll, baby, you know. Did you seek out women who supported your lifestyle? I mean, women who drank or used? Uh, and what were the outcomes of those types of relationships? Absolutely. The way I lived, you know, uh, as, a, as a drinker and, and a heavy drug user, I used to say, oh, I, I, I've sought out lower companions. After some years in recovery, I realized I, I was likely the lower companion. And, and plenty <laughs> of these women were, were sweet, but, but fellow alcoholics, you know, I, and I've been married four times, only once in sobriety. Mm-hmm. The first woman I married was when I was 19, uh, a workmate who asked me to marry her so she could stay in the country to get a green card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got paid an amount of money which I spent, first time I bought a large amount of drugs. I used the money to buy a lot of cocaine. So that was a ridiculous relationship and, and, and finally, you know, dissolved that marriage. How long did that one last? I, I mean, a year or so, and t- just long enough to get the green card. Then I lived with a couple mm. other women, always fellow partiers using hard drugs, LSD, cocaine, speed, alcohol, always together. And I would think that Oh, you have a problem. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to help you get your shit together, but you don't know how to drink like I do. You know, you really, you're very sloppy. You're, you know, you're really, you gotta get your shit together, sweetheart. So their problem was the way that they were relating to your problem. Probably so. Right? I think that's accurate. I had lived with a couple of the women, and I married a, a country and western singer, pretty well known, a woman named Lucinda. We've worked a lot of things, and we've known each other from we were kids when we got married. But you know, drinking impacted our marriage for sure. And I can only speak for myself. But again, I thought, well, I don't have a problem. Look at you, and clearly, I had a problem. How long were you with her before you guys married? I'm definitely a ready shoot shoot aim. So you know, we probably dated dated for a couple of weeks, moved in together, lived together for probably six months, and got married, and were di- divorced probably three years later, maybe if that, maybe two and a half years. I like to squeeze it all in. (laughs) So there was nothing within that relationship during those early months that made you think things would get worse if you got married or did you think they'd get better? Uh, Yes, I did. She suffered from some emotional issues, you know, and was in treatment. Mm -hmm. I had just started doing some therapy. Uh, Yeah, there was red flags everywhere. That's a little bit of a theme to relationships I've had. Minus my wife now, who I had to do a lot of work before she would agree to spend any real time with me, was <laughs> a crossroads when I would come to this place where I would think, well, this relationship really isn't working for a myriad of reasons, drinking, financial, infidelity, whatever, on both sides. And I would think, well, we've got to fix this thing. We should either break up or get married. And I did that more than once, you know. And I did that with Lucinda, and then my I have a daughter who's 32, and her mother uh, I met soon after I split up with Lucinda, and same thing, you know. And she knows my story in recovery, and she's been in and out yeah. herself. My first red flag was on our one of our very first dates. All we could talk about is how odd it was that neither one of us drank. And that was the theme of the entire... <laughs> I barely drink, but so you don't either. Wow, it's so weird. <laughs> 
you know, and do you dr- use drugs? No, yeah. not real. No, neither do I. Not, hey, we both were alcoholic and both had severe drug habits. Why would you admit that? I mean, there'd be no reason to admit Correct. that. What was the thinking associated with, okay, so this is how the relationship is going. Let's get married. What did you think was going to change or, or let's say be improved by getting married that you didn't already have in the relationship prior? I think that that fear of abandonment, that the pain of breaking up was more frightening than enduring a marriage that, that might not work. And because my parents had been, they, they were married till, till my father died, 55 years. I can't say happily, I wouldn't call their marriage happy, but that was the, that was the blueprint. So hmm, maybe, fuck it, let's get married. Maybe, maybe something good will happen. And, huh. and I think, uh, I actually believe in, in, I've been married for you know 20 plus years. I, really, I deeply believe in the concept of marriage or a committed relationship, but it took me a long time to understand how to honor a, a relationship and how to be a good a good mate, you know. Uh, I learned a lot of that at Al-Anon. I joined Al-Anon uh, a few years into my sobriety. So, um, but yeah, I it yeah. was like, well, fuck it. And and then the woman uh, that I was married to, that was the mother of my daughter, uh, she had two children from another uh, marriage, and had married her drug dealer, which. <laughs> She, you know, she had a drug habit, and she's that's convenient. Handy. Yeah, convenient. So to me, I thought that was <laughs> kind of weird. And, and he had joined AA. So when we first were dating, yeah. and, and then we were living together, when she had custody of these of her children, I would go pick them up for her, and I would meet at an AA mm-hmm. meeting. And I used to think, man, this guy's really fucking weird. Like, who would bring a kid to an AA meeting? I had no idea that it was a nice. You know, all meetings are different, obviously, but this, these meetings were a safe place. And uh, God bless him. I mean, he knew I, I was getting loaded. Was that your first exposure to AA? Yeah, actually, you're right. I never thought about that. Yes. Picking them up at me, and I would go, kind of stick my head in the door, and it was horrifying. <laughs> what, was your, well, what was your perception? What were you horrified by? Uh, well, first of all, for losers, you know, the ultimate, you know, the uh, <laughs> paper bags and, and raincoats, all that kind of stuff. I had no idea. I didn't understand... You know, a mixed meeting or a stag meeting or a family-oriented solution, none of that. It was just the ultimate hmm. end-of-the-road loser. What an asshole to bring his kids when he's sick. He's sick. I guess in a way I was oh, right, geez. but he was getting better. I was even yeah. sicker. <laughs> and how about the kids? What was, their, what was the long-term uh, effect of them going to AA meetings when they were young. Sometimes kids get impri- you know imprinted with that for the rest of their lives. That uh, either uh, they decide to either drink to prove that they don't have a problem, or they don't drink because of it. My uh, stepdaughter uh, has now been sober for three or four years, but she uh, she was probably six or seven when we met. She went on a long journey into addiction. She was very very heavy, mm. and she. She shares her story. So she went to prison. She lost three children to the court. And they would take out. She had a very, very difficult story and an incredible survivor and a story of redemption and sobriety in AA. Uh, and she works in recovery. So it's, it's a great story. And then her oh, older great. brother, who had some mental health, still has mental health issues, has bounced out of a, in and out of AA for, you know, probably 20 years. He's in his 40s now. So sometimes the credits don't transfer. You know that. 
Yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that. That was your second wife is the one that you, you had the two stepchildren On with? paper, third, but but second, I really third. committed to trying to... The, the woman that I married for the uh, green card, I mean, we never even lived together. It was just, it was really just a stupid move, but that was good for her. She was a nice woman, so she got to stay in the U.S. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Greg, when you were uh, when you were playing in the band, to what extent were you traveling, and how did that play into your relationships with the women who were left while you were traveling and on tour? Very important part of my story. So, my first band I was in when I first moved out of the house was getting popular more locally and up and down California. Mm-hmm. We weren't traveling overseas, uh, and that was when I'm drinking and partying and being high on stage. And I got fired from that band. I had started the band, and it was very successful. And very cool, critically acclaimed, and uh, very unique in its field. And I came to a meet band meeting, and they gathered around, and everybody drank and partied. Uh, and they said, your uh, alcohol use is affecting your ability to play in this band. They fired me. And I, I, I wept like a baby. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. It's a really serious consequence for me. It was a surprise to you? I mean, usually people say something before they pull that sort of thing, just yanking the carpet out from under you. Do you remember them ever sitting you down and talking to you and saying, look, Greg, you know, this is getting a little bit over the top. You need to cut down. Probably. In fairness to them, I can't remember. It's, you know, a long time. It's more than 40 years ago. But everybody in that band were heavy drinkers and heavy drug users. So it's, you know, the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man. So I think that it's taken me a long time to come to terms that even in, in a in a group of people that can drink and use with some frequency uh may yeah. or may not be or it may not affect their life either way i was out and so then i formed my next band which is still goes to this day you must have been really pissed when that happened were you really angry about that i was very very angry i was going to show them but it was my next band and heartbroken and embarrassed you know i was very very embarrassed did you ramp up your use of of alcohol and drugs during that time Problem. I don't know if I ever ramped down. I think I just kind of was, you know, uh, because and also I didn't really take any responsibility for it. So we formed a new band that did very well. And I think that I I didn't slow down on drinking, but I eased back on the the drug use. I, I did know that I was using cocaine too much and quite, I, I knew it. That's why I could only be so angry because I, I knew it. They, they weren't wrong. You know, I couldn't perform yes. because, you know, we are sort of creatures that we want to fit in. The, the next group of guys, the stew band, they all drank, but they weren't really drug users. So there wasn't really an environment where I could, uh, you know, use a lot of the cocaine and heavier drugs. 
So I switched from, you know, beer to whiskey or, or, or wine yeah, to gin. Sure. And I got the same effect, but it was more socially acceptable with this group of, of guys. So I just I just drank. Did they all drink? Yes. Yeah. One guy's quit. He not Probably not an alcoholic, but finally got an ulcer from drinking and, and quit. He said, I can't drink anymore. And then another guy uh, was able just to moderate his drinking. He, not an alcoholic. Now, to what extent did the people around you, the promoters, the managers, the roadies, uh, other people who were in your little sphere at that time, to what extent were they enabling drinking and drug use for you? Yeah, I think just no, no, other than that first band that fired me, really no consequences. And, you know, work hard, play hard, and it's rock and roll. And I have a, a recollection of playing a show. Maybe I feel like it was in Kentucky. It was a club. We had to, in the old days. You had to play two sets. You know, you'd play two right. shows and clear the house. And right. uh, I don't think I realized we were going to play two shows. And I had discovered a new drink in the South: Rebel Yell whiskey. You know, <laughs> I, it was a great. It was great. I remember seeing a picture of Keith Richards drinking. Anything Keith Richards did was okay with me. I want to <laughs> be like that. All my heroes. You know. Yeah. And yeah. so I was drinking at the bar, and leader of the band came up to me and said, you know, we got to play another show. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, you're too fucking drunk to play. I said, ah, I'll be fine. I was too drunk to play, but I remember telling my uh, roadie, my drum guy, I said, uh, I had also discovered Jägermeister. I put a you know glass on, on my stand next to me. I said, just make sure it doesn't, it's, I don't want to see it empty all night long. Every time I look over, I see that full. So I figured I would drink through. I was so drunk, all I could do is keep going. Of course, halfway through the show, I, I passed out on stage, and the show was over, and they had to refund the money to everybody, and, um, you know, fun with problems. But they, they didn't kick me out of the band. I'm not really sure why. But it was a lot of What that. did you learn from that, if anything? Nothing. <laughs> Isn't that something? Just, you know... <laughs> Some days you're going to be drunker than others. Another situation where you had the consequences, but they didn't really punish you, did they? Right. The consequences themselves. You know, sometimes I think for me, the, the consequences, I was prepared to endure them. You know, it was the, yeah, the notion yeah. of not drinking. And again, I hadn't considered really stopping. I, I would always think about moderation or Again, switching from one spirit to the other. Or really, I knew I had to stay off cocaine. That was really... I, I knew that was bad. I, I And, you know, there were some financial issues back then in the 70s and 80s, pre-crack era. So just to be out from a practical point of view, it, cocaine was very expensive then. And so mm -hmm. that may have slowed me down a little bit. Mm -hmm. I was not a person that would steal to get money to buy cocaine. I would just have, use drink, you know. I think first or last, always, I've always been an alcoholic drinker, you know. Yeah, that's my story, too. I used marijuana and whatever drugs I took alcoholically, so I, I think that's a fairly common yeah. common theme for a lot of people. So walk us down the road a little bit, if you if you wouldn't mind, Greg, on, on the years leading up to whatever it was turned you around and turned you toward AA. So the band that that's still going to this day, we split up for a period of time. We, you know, bands fight, and we split yeah. up really for the 90s. It was the end of the 80s. I had married... Uh, my wife at the time and what I had mm -hmm. a daughter with and I had gotten a job at a music company the company I work for today mm -hmm. yeah, I think they, they know I've been sober long they like it actually <laughs> I'm a better worker <laughs> so yeah, I'll bet anyway and I, I got a job 
I had a little more money, you know, because mm-hmm. at the end of a band, unless you're, you know, really, really successful, money, you run out of money quick. So I was uh, living with uh, my soon-to-be wife, trying to raise her two kids, which, you know, I couldn't take care of myself, let alone telling her how, you know, I love to tell her how to raise the kids. You're a terrible mom. You need to do this. Well, you know. <laughs> And so my drinking really, really started to escalate because I now was in the music business and, you you know, going out to concerts and, and spending time with artists. And I realized that a lot of the credits I had earned as a performing musician and a rock and roll party animal, they, those did transfer. I now had some credibility. So all these business guys that really didn't know how to hang out with musicians, like these, I know all these guys. So... I was back in the mix, and I now had a steady income, so the first thing I could do was afford cocaine again. And I hadn't really used cocaine for probably three or four years, not not with any frequency. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah. that convinced me that I could certainly control and enjoy stop and start as I chose to. And had a couple of different phases in my life where I, I would use cocaine, have some really serious consequences broken relationship, go to jail, kicked out of a band, whatever. And then some time would go by and that irrational thought that I could use cocaine with impunity would start to turn into a more of an obsessive thought that, of course, everything's going to be fine. So I would get back to the cocaine. And so I was working in this company. I was now an executive. I was around other people that partied. I thought they were quote unquote amateurs. So I'm going to show them how real rock and rollers do it. So I started using cocaine again. And my wife also started using drugs along with me. Mm-hmm. She liked more opiates and things, but we started living a pretty rock and roll lifestyle. I had a lot of uh, really well-known artists that I spent time with, some that were pretty strung out. And uh, so it was just, it was the coin of the realm. You know, work hard, yeah. play hard. And I do things that other people can't do. You don't know how to talk to the talent. Yeah. So once again, Greg, this sounds like a theme, maybe a pattern. You were let off the hook in an environment where there was no hook, right? So there you are working in an industry where the very things that create consequences for other people were just, you know, everyday standard business operating procedure. They'd say, send Greg to the concert, send Greg to the meeting, let him hang out. He he speaks their language, which is code for, you know, knows how to party with them. And by the way, not every musician I worked with had a drug or alcohol problem, but yeah. for some reason, you know, we have that that heat-seeking drug and alcohol radar. We birds of a feather. I found the ones that wanted to live like I lived. So how how long did that continue with uh, you working kind of both ends of the field? So it's sort of 1990 to 1997. Uh, my wife, uh, we had li- moved in together, and she got pregnant and then lost the baby. Uh, no, sorry, had an abortion. We decided right. it wasn't time for an, a baby to come into this. our family. Decided together, but again, mm-hmm. some trauma and sadness around that. And we decided to get married. You know, one more time, like, well, should we break up or get married? Eh, let's get married. Something, something's bound, something good will happen. Maybe we'll both stop partying. Uh, maybe I'll become a better stepfather. Maybe we'll start our own family. And she got pregnant again. Mm-hmm. And then I got hired. I was working at another music company, and that's when it started picking up. So I had a wife. I had two stepkids that were living with Mm -hmm. us that had some trauma and a baby on the way. And I found my alcohol and drug use uh, ramping up again, escalating. Ramping up. Staying out later, uh, going on more business trips, uh, not being faithful in my marriage again. And never once thinking, I knew uh, that I, I shouldn't be living like this. 
but I, I didn't care and I didn't understand the compulsion of, of the drinking. I just thought I didn't care. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't realize I was now drinking against my will. Yeah. Even though I had plenty of information and my wife pleaded with me, I'd be gone for a few days. I'd come home and, and my wife would say, look, look, kids, Uncle Daddy's home for a visit, you know, and which is painful. Yeah. You saw the banana peel, but you stepped on it anyway. Didn't care. Didn't care. To a certain degree, our marriage broke up a few times and we would go back together. And I don't know if uh, it was with him. Maybe just the consequences weren't severe enough to get my attention. Yeah. Because I think it's, it's sometimes I think it's cavalier. I'll say, oh, I, I just didn't care. Yeah. That's probably to speak about it with you and really be honest. I, pro I probably did care, but I, I, I couldn't stop. Yeah. To be honest, you know, I mean, I like to say I chose not to stop because I, I enjoyed it. But, you know, we're now in just the problem zone. So we're now in the mid 90s. I'm still an executive. I'm, I'm having some success. Not really what they're paying me to do, but ultimately a bad actor. But at that point, still still kind of keeping all the plates spinning. Do you think if they had called you on that early on? I mean, if, if they were a standard type of corporation and. You know, where yeah. drinking is not tolerated and that kind of behavior is not tolerated. Do you think you would have stopped sooner? Or was it was that just the case of your functional alcoholism being enabled by the very company that you worked for? I, I can't answer that. I'd love to blame them. Or, and that kind of goes to even what we were saying earlier, my mother saying, I should have done more to help you. Yeah. I don't know that, I, that it would have worked. I mean, I guess they could have fired me and I would have had a, another good reason to drink. I, hmm. I mean, we don't really need a lot of great reasons. If we're now drinking against our will, the compulsion has kicked in, you know, the phenomenon of craving. And for me, the phenomenon of craving didn't necessarily look like every morning having the DTs if I didn't get to the liquor store. Sure, Mine was just that I'm happy to have one drink or 10 drinks and I'm happy to do no cocaine or cocaine for three days until I don't even know where I am. Yeah. So it's not even binge drink. It's just, it's unpredictable. Like, you know, yeah. which kind of cancer do you have? Yeah. Well, I have the kind I've got. Yeah, but it sounds like you were managing your drug and alcohol use to the extent that you were still able to carry on working and doing what you were doing. And as long as you could do that, there probably wasn't much of a problem perceived. Probably. Uh, and, and other than people saying, hey, you should take it easy. And t until, <laughs> yeah, right. until... Our moment of clarity, so this is now 1997, and I'm, I'm a daily drinker probably, and certainly using other narcotics to come off cocaine runs, Ambien, sure. uh, other sleeping pills, you know, sleeping days at a time, mm -hmm. uh, ending up in emergency hospitals, slipping and falling, cuts on my face, uh, you know, getting in fights uh, in, in bars. Uh, my wife probably not throwing me out because I was the sole breadwinner and she also was fighting her own drug and alcohol issues at the time. Mm -hmm. So finally I crossed that line. You know, we, we say I'll never, if I ever cross that line, I'll get some help or I'll stop. Right. And right. You, you just move the line, of course. So, mm -hmm. and so another line I had crossed was becoming violent in my home toward a family member. Mm. And, uh, and my wife had called the police before, and the police had come out, you know, bang on the door in the middle of the night and flashlight and what's going on here? Is there a problem coming in? Counseling, that kind of thing. Like, you guys can't, you got to keep it down. The neighbors are coming. Your wife called 911. Oh, I've changed mm -hmm. my mind. You know, so now that's going on. It's happening, not weekly, but it's probably happening two or three times over a course of six months. 
so finally mm-hmm. uh, had been on a on a run, you know, with with my uh-huh. rock and roll friends, a pretty well known artist, and you know, again having artists that I knew that had very serious drug problems, telling me you need to slow down, and having managers call me, the artist managers, and saying stay away from my artist. That's now happening mm. with some regularity. People that are well known mm. heroin addicts and cocaine addicts, and their teams are saying I'm a bad influence on them, which typically would get your attention. Of course, I thought, well, that's ridiculous. I love to say, me? What about you? That's, I love that. I still fight with that. <laughs> so I assaulted a family member uh, and my wife had called the police again. And, and that was my moment of clarity. Before the police got there, I was suddenly ready to go get some help. And I, I knew, you, uh, you know, when you, you just feel like you're running out of, I was having violent dreams, uh, uh, entertaining a lot of thoughts of self-harm. I can't say I was suicidal, but it just keeps escalating. It's so dark. The tunnel is so dark. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that this was it. I couldn't do anything. I didn't know how to stop drinking and using drugs. I didn't even think about it. I, I just was now to that place. So before the police came, I was gone. You know, I got, I got in my truck with probably one shoe and a pack of cigarettes and, you know, a T-shirt. And I and I got on my phone and I called uh, the insurance. I had an insurance card. Moment of clarity. I called insurance. If you're experiencing a drug and alcohol crisis, God bless my job. I still had this job. And they said... He said, are you experiencing a drug and alcohol crisis? I said, yes, I am. <laughs> I'm getting fucking arrested here. And yes, I am experiencing drug. <laughs> and so they said, well, you can go immediately to a place in Glendale. And because I did grow up in Glendale, I yeah. said, uh, I'll go there. Of course, still driving drunk. Drove to the rehab and turned myself in. And, yeah. you know, they did an intake eval. The end is, you know, crying mm-hmm. and freaked out and, you know, trying to detox. And I remember saying... I was obsessed with that I had become a drug addict, you know. And I said, well, do you think I'm a drug addict uh-huh. or crying? Yeah. And, the, and I remember so clearly the counselor saying, I don't know if you're a drug addict, but you might be an alcoholic. You might have a problem with alcohol. And it was like, you know, the classic thing, the brakes slammed on and everything in the backseat came forward. And my mind was racing and thinking of my uncles and my dad. And I'm like, <laughs> no fucking way. The classic response, not me. I am way too cool to be an alcoholic. Hmm. Don't look at me. I'm a fucking right, you know. I get high because that's I'm an outlaw, baby. And that was the first time that someone had ever posed that question to me. Even my wife at the time said, why can't you just get off hard drugs and just drink beer and smoke weed like a gentleman? I had no idea that was even kind of big book stuff. If I could just drink like a gentleman. I was thrown out of the house. I stayed in this rehab in Glendale for 30 days. That didn't make you want to split when that happened? When they, when the guy told you that you might be an alcoholic? Did you feel like getting just getting out of there at that point? No. I wanted to stay. I, I, and I don't know if it was because I was afraid. to. I knew the police were looking for me. And they protected my anonymity. I knew I was getting arrested. But I, I think uh, I was just ready uh-huh. because the theme the whole time, I mean, they were trying to arrest me and they had served a warrant and my wife was angry and, and you know, the family member, I, it was one of my stepkids I had, I had assaulted. Their father was chasing me to get me arrested, the guy in A. And by the way, it's taken me many years to understand that, yeah, wow. they should have arrested me. It's okay. Sounds like the wheels were really coming off that wagon, huh? It all hit at once. And I called my boss at work who to this day has his own alcohol problems but has been my friend and mentor he, he works somewhere else but 
he told me, I called him from rehab <laughs> from a payphone, of course, right? And uh, I was supposed uh-huh. to show up at a music convention in Portland, and there was a whole team waiting for me. I was going to lead this team you mm-hmm. know, to a, a week's worth of meetings, and I was the head guy. And I, I before I this last night, I'd gone out and bought a quarter ounce of cocaine that was going to be for the whole trip and of course used it all the whole night you know and that's when I saw the family member he said where, where are you he's a Scottish guy where are you Junior mm-hmm. he used to call me Junior where are you Junior they're calling me everybody's calling where are you I was supposed to be in Portland I said I'm in rehab and I remember so clearly he said to me are you sure and I said yeah I'm pretty fucking sure <laughs> So he called back the rest of the team. They didn't understand, you know, what a crisis it was for me. And he called the kids. They were like, where's where's the boss? Where's Greg? And and the big boss told him, he said, we've got a man down. <laughs> that was how we referred to me, man down. So he made sure they didn't fire me. And believe me, if I hadn't gotten sober this, this run, it's different. Get your fifth or sixth time at trying to get sober in a company, they should fire you. Two employers, right? But they gave me a chance, so I stayed in. I stayed in the rehab and learned about AA. They took us to meetings every night, and I learned the notion that alcoholism was a disease. I learned about you know the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body. I know no, I didn't know any of this, but I think I was just ready. It sounds like you were ready at that point. Uh, from what they were telling you about Alcoholics Anonymous, AA was a good thing while you were in rehab. But what sense did you get of what was next with regard to AA after you got out of rehab? Well, they told me I had to leave rehab after whatever it was, 30 days. And my wife said, you can't come home. You never never come home again. You're out. So I know where to go. So I had a sponsor. I'd gotten a sponsor, and he helped me find a sober living. And uh, they had told me that I had to do this a day at a time for the rest of my life. And the, the specter of nowhere to live and likely prison time created some degree of motivation for me. So, and I was starting to feel better. After 30 days, you dry out a little bit and I enjoyed the camaraderie. I felt like I was part of something because I always felt like an outsider. Even though uh, I've been accused of being a social butterfly and having lots of friends and acquaintances, but always felt you know like an outsider inside, you know. Uh, and, and so something had started to click. I liked the service work. I liked setting up the chairs. I learned how to make my bed. They told me I had to get up at 7 o'clock every morning. And I, I was shocked. I, <laughs> I had no idea there were two 7 o'clocks every, every 24 hours. I was more familiar with 7 p.m., but they said, no, there, there's one that happens in the morning. And so I learned how to get up. And sober living, they, they continued to reaffirm that stuff. And that changed my life. And everybody was a teacher. Some guys died when I was in sober living. There were guys that, that OD'd and died. Everybody was a teacher. Some men there taught me exactly what to do, how to build a program, day at a time, and some taught me what not to do. And so a day at a time, I started feeling better. And then, of course, I had to get an attorney and go to court. The attorney, uh, I sat down and told him what happened, and he said, well, you're probably going to go to prison. He said, I can help you with trying to keep you from going to prison for, for very right. long. So what, I, that's, I can't go to prison. I'm fucking rock and roll. I have a real job. I have a family. I, I'm too cool for prison. I said, well, because you've told me you've done this and, you know, the cat's out of the bag, you're, I'm telling you, and there's evidence and witnesses, you're going to go to fucking prison. So he said, if I was you, I would stay sober. I'd go to as many AA meetings as you can and take it a day at a time so that it might not be as bad as it could be 
And he said, you're going to have to ask yourself a question at some point. Can you stay sober in prison? I had no idea that this attorney had such a feel for recovery. And, um, and in that moment, I said, I don't want to go to prison, but I know I need to stay sober no matter where I am. Another moment of clarity. It was really heavy, very, very spiritual. And I have no idea. I wow. didn't anything around it, but that's how it's, a, it's 25 years ago. I remember clearly. So I started going to court. You know, I had many court dates and um, the judge was very sympathetic to recovery. And mm-hmm. I remember going to court. My sponsor would go with me and my attorney and he would stand next to me. And uh, <laughs> I would always try to talk to the judge and tell him how great I was doing. And they'd say, just be quiet. You talk too much. I want your honor. May I address the court? And then I. You're an idiot. Anyway, but mm-hmm. man after man would come to court and they got off easier than me. They got shorter sentences. They were sentenced to AA. And every time I'd go back, the judge would say, do another, uh, you know, 25 meetings and come back. And and I was so angry, even though I knew I didn't want to go to jail. Yeah. I was also angry that they didn't understand how great I was doing in recovery. Right. Right. As you go to AA, you're willing to do anything. Right. And three weeks later, you're complaining about the coffee. This coffee sucks, man. So I thought I was such a great example of recovery. They should let me off the hook. And my sponsor told me as I stood in that courtroom each time, he, every time they extended my uh, sentence, they, they, were, they hadn't uh, ruled on it. I decided I would let the judge yeah. They said, keep going to AA. He said, you should thank that judge. He's saving your life. Every time he sentences you to more AA means he's saving your life. So finally, they reduced the charges, and after uh, over a year, I pled guilty to a lesser charge, and I didn't serve a single day in jail. And and then after some years, they expunged my record. So it, it truly was a miracle. So somewhere along the way, Greg, the court sentencing you to go to AA and continuing to do that for a period of time was just long enough to get you set up in the program. That's right. The attorney that represents me, he's elderly now, but I still call him every year on my AA birthday to thank him for his support. He's a defense attorney. I call him every every year on my AA birthday and thank him for helping me. You know, and he says, no one ever calls him. I said, well, I'm, I'm grateful. And, and I, I get very emotional about that because I was very close call. You know, I was kicked out of my house, So, but I went, they told me to go to the 90 meetings in 90 days and or more. And I, I was going to as many meetings as I could, two a day, so, you know, whatever I could do, sometimes three if I, you know, had time off work. And I went everywhere. I drove all over the San Fernando Valley. I'd go anywhere there was a meeting. Hmm. Uh, and I drove other guys. I drove other newer guys. I took commitments. I loved it. I loved the camaraderie, and I felt like I was getting better. I actually felt like I was starting to physically heal, and the H word, hope, I began to feel some hope. And I knew I wasn't going, I knew my marriage was over, and I was pretty sure I was going to go to jail, but I still felt a little hope. Sounds like you felt some enjoyment, too. I mean, I don't think we stick around AA if we're not actually enjoying it, especially at some point. I mean, there's the there's right. the deadly serious part of sticking around, but then there's a part of actually going because I enjoy going. I loved it. It's enriching my day and my life. Yes, it was fun to laugh. Right. We're not a glum lot, you know, uh, and for some reason, and I a lot of tears and a, I felt like I could express myself, you know, the meeting yeah. before and after the meeting. I didn't even mind sober living. It was kind of freaked me out, you know, but I still did it. I did it for almost a year and my marriage, it blew apart. And then my wife asked me to come home for a period of time. I wasn't ready. And then finally we were both ready. And after a year or two, that marriage finally, it just collapsed. It just, 
too much water under the bridge. And I, I learned that sometimes a marriage that begins in sickness may not survive health. But I was ready. I knew I would be okay, and I knew I could be a father. I was not used to being a single father. The first time my daughter, she's 32 now, she was coming over her first weekend with dad alone, and I was really, really mm-hmm. scared. I didn't know what to do. So I never, you know, uncle, uncle daddy, right? So I remember asking my sponsor, what should I do? I'm completely freaked out. He said, let's keep it simple, asshole. Every time you make a sandwich, <laughs> make two. And let's start there. Great advice. Great advice. Keep it simple, right? So anyway, that marriage finally collapsed. You know, it was a difficult uh, divorce. It was painful. My ex-wife was very angry, and for rightfully so. She was struggling with her own drug and alcohol issues, but I kept go- I kept going to meetings. I was sponsoring men. I never missed an alimony payment or a child support payment. I wrote each check instead of saying, go fuck yourself. I said, I'm grateful that my daughter has a money. Even if I didn't always mean it, I did it anyway. Took direction. You were heading in the right direction, learning from AA how to handle those situations that probably would have baffled you previously. So over the years, you said you were sponsoring men and taking guys to meetings. At what point did you start sponsoring and what has sponsorship looked like over the 25 years that you've been sober? So the first man that I sponsored... Uh, we had a mutual friend. He came. I was going to meetings in Glendale. Mm-hmm. We were at a meeting together. And it was a man who had been sober some years. Uh, and he knew both of us. And uh, this guy had asked him to sponsor. He said, I can't sponsor you. He said, we're, we're like family. So he brought him to me and said, you're going to sponsor this man. And I was sober about nine months. And I, ha- I hadn't been through all the steps yet. Mm-hmm. I probably maybe I, I tried to do a step a month was my recollection. I looked at him and I said, you know, I haven't worked all the steps yet. And he looked at me and he said, well, I don't believe in God. And the other guy <laughs> said, you'll be perfect for each other. That's great. And to this day, he's still sober. He's turning 25 years sober next week. Isn't that great? And we've been together the whole time. So uh, that was the first one. And of course, I had many, many men that didn't want what I had. And, and they were probably drunk before we hung up the phone, our first conversation. Yeah. And other men that I've sponsored for a long time. So... My approach to AA is relatively traditional. You know, we work from the big book, and I believe that the steps, you know, are there to help us have some kind of a spiritual experience. I believe that physical sobriety has to come first for all of us, and then, you know, we take those steps to have some kind of psychic change, spiritual experience. I've had a spiritual experience of the educational variety, very slow over time. Yeah, that, that's how it was for me, too, and, and it took me getting through all 12 steps and looking back to see where God had been working in my life, and that's what convinced me that spirituality was mine all along. I agree. You know, the, the actual work we can do in our 12 steps, you know, they say the spiritual part of our program, like the wet part of the ocean, you know, all of it, right? But but the fellowship and the support we get, and a book I'm reading right now, the Taoist book, you know, part of Buddhism, the, the Tao Te Ching, and it's great. It's just, it's giving me some new things to think about. Again, same God, same universe, but different ways, different apps. I like to think of them as apps or operating systems to plug in, different things to consider. And and today we were talking about in our meeting, our third step and, you know, turning it over and then leaving the results up to our higher power. And I said that it's glib and it's easy to say that. And that is what we try to do. But, but to, to really do the work, 
the tools, like the you know the steps are like gardening tools to really do the work with no concern for the result. That that's I'm not quite there, but you know I still think well I'm going to do it and something good, good will happen. But to be released and be not connected to that result, our definition of good or bad to just just to do the work and then move on regardless of result. Boy, I'm not there yet, but that's the kinds of things I'm trying to contemplate now as, as I move a little deeper into my sobriety. That's, you know, you got to grow or go, baby, right? Isn't that what they tell that's us? That's right. That's right. That's a beautiful thought and certainly uh, uh, something I think could sustain a, a long-term program like the one you have right now. And one last thing I want to ask you, if the Greg of today could go back to the Greg at any time in your life, any age, what would you say to that, Greg, based on what you have now that would make a difference in that Greg's future? Uh, I would say probably preteen, mm-hmm. just before I started getting loaded, and the concept of it's an inside job, the God within, the inner dwelling spirit, that you're going to be okay. We can't guarantee you that no uncomfortable things are going to happen to you, but you're going to be okay. It's mm-hmm. an inside job. It's not the things on the outside that are going to fix you. And for me, it was women and money and drugs and alcohol and notoriety. It, uh, it's an inside job. Yeah, it sounds like an opportunity that we all have, and it kind of comes and goes before we know it. And then we're reflecting on it years later. Yes, sir. This has been a really great uh, opportunity for you and I to get to know each other better, Greg. I just want to tell you that that I honor and respect your sobriety. I admire your program and the fact that you're willing to be there to be of service to other men is is really big. And the way you've expressed the way you work your program, I think, is inspirational to those people who might be wondering, can I stay sober another day, let alone 25 years? I think you've covered all those bases today, and and I really want to thank you for doing that. And as I tell all my guests, I love you, and I care uh, about you as an AA brother, and know that this message being put out there, if even just one person's life is touched, man, you and I will have hit a home run. So uh, again, I want to express my thanks to you for doing this. Well, let me thank you, Howard. I feel the same way. I love you, too. Uh, and that, that spiritual love we have as, as brothers in AA. And thank you for paying a big-time 12-step call on me today <laughs> and, and, and letting me consider a little bit more about why I'm really here. Thank you. Well, thank you. It helps me consider it for myself as well. So God bless you with that. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Greg S., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all the interviews in this podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell your smart speaker, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.